Well, good morning. Our scripture today is from John chapter 19, verses 16 to 37. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have just heard, I have just read, the darkest, most heinous event in all of human history. Within these verses, there's plots, there's subplots, there's fulfilled 
prophecies, there's anguish, there's cosmic transactions going on. And so when you look at a passage like this, the question is, what, what do I say? What do we hear? What do we emphasize? But I think because of our time and place, there's just three things that I want to point out here. What do I mean by our time and place? Some of you may know, some of you may not know, but there are people in our community that are going through things that stretch the limits of human understanding. There are broken hearts. And then there are many who have come to All Saints for a while, maybe years, but they cannot believe the gospel. It just does not make sense to them. And then there are Christians among us who know these truths cognitively, but they find it impossible to live a life of joy. In fact, when people look at them, the last thing they would think is, that person must know Jesus Christ. And so with that as our audience, here's the first thing to notice. There is a verse here in this narrative that is completely out of place. In fact, if I had a student who would turn this into me as an essay, I would circle this verse and I would say, you need to take it out. It doesn't belong here. Or if you're going to keep it there, you need to put it in parentheses because it's completely out of place. It's verse number 35. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John is giving this incredible narrative, and right in the middle of it, he stops and he says, wait a minute, rather than going on in the story, I want to tell you that the person who is writing to you is telling you the truth. That I'm not lying. The question often comes up in our lives, how do I know? How do I know this is true? How can we tell what is true? John is very aware that many will not believe, cannot believe, or live with doubts because this just seems to be too strange. There are Christians that go through periods of doubt. You may be in that season right now. And if you think that Christians don't go through periods of doubt, listen to a, a quote here by the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said, I think when a man says, I never doubt... It's time for us to doubt him. Another Englishman, 
I think the trouble with me is my lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I'm posting letters to a non-existent address. C.S. Lewis. How do we know what to believe, whether this is true or not? There's actually several criteria we decide as human beings in terms of believing something, knowing something. There's, there's of course, we know something through mathematical certainty. You have uh, two bags, uh, you have two potatoes in a bag, and uh, you put two more potatoes in a bag, and uh, how many potatoes do we have? We have four potatoes. That's true in Idaho, the potato state. That's true in Brazil. That's true if you go to the moon. That's true if you go to Mars. If you have two potatoes in a bag and you put two more potatoes in a bag, you'll have four. Mathematical certainty. It's the foundation of our technology. If, if you get on an airplane that is on its way to Honolulu and the pilot comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're hoping to make it to Honolulu. Our, our, um, our instruments aren't really working right now, um, but we're going to go up in the air and we're going to see if we can find our way there. Uh, well, you, you would not feel very comfortable in that situation. There's technology that the pilots are looking for to get us to where we are going. And it may surprise you for you to think, well, mathematics has nothing to do with whether you believe in God or not, but that is not the case at all. Christianity asserts that mathematical laws have been put in place by a personal God of order. I would direct you to the Oxford mathematician who was actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth, Sir John Polkinghorne, who writes a brilliant essay called So Finely Tuned a Universe. You can see it online. That shows that this mathematical certainty that we have comes from, can only come from a, a God who put these things in place. The scientific revolution was put in place by godly Christian men who believed that math and technology was put in place by God. Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal. Maybe you've heard this before. I'll tell you why industrialization took place in the West before it took place in the East. It took place in the West because the Christians believed that there was a God who is a God of truth who put these laws in place. I direct you again to professor at University of Washington, uh, Rodney Stark's book, The Victory of Reason, that demonstrates oh, that's, that's why the West industrialized before the East. It makes all kinds of sense. So there's mathematical certainty. We also have certainty by what we see, what we observe, what we touch, our senses. Uh, empirically, we see things and we know and believe because of that. We also know what is true because of our subjective experience. When a doctor goes out of a room 
and has to tell the parents, I'm sorry, but your child didn't make it. That doctor doesn't say, uh, you just need to know that was just a bunch of chemicals in there that has passed away. That's not true. We know it's not true. You know, when you go to a funeral, somebody doesn't stand up and say, this person that you love who is lying before you, they were just chemicals. Don't worry about it. We know subjectively that is not true. I love my son. I love my wife. And somebody says, well, why do you love him? And we say, well, I, I, I just love him. Think of who you love the most. Hamlet's letter to Ophelia. Shakespeare writes for Hamlet. You may doubt the stars are fire. You may doubt that the sun moves. You may, th- you may doubt if the truth is a liar, but you must never doubt my love. We know experientially. But the most, and finally here, the most devalued in our day of deciding whether something is true or not is history, is the evidence of history. We live in a post-truth age now where uh, history is, is not really seen as a way to find out what's true or not. We, we say the Greeks enjoyed an unlikely victory at Marathon in 490 BC. And we say, well, how do you know that? How accurate are the sources, the records? Can we really be sure of anything in history. Ironically, it's the secular, modern, postmodern historians, professors, who are devaluating history and saying, well, history really can't tell us what has happened in the past. Some of you may be aware of this. You probably get it if you go to a private or secular university. First day of class, the history professor stands up. And uh, there's a hundred students out there that this professor is speaking to. And he has prearranged somebody to come in through the side door 15 minutes into his lecture and to create a scene and to start shouting at the professor. And they start shouting at each other. And finally, the professor says, get out of here. And the person leaves. And, so, and then the professor says, okay, you guys... I'm, I'm really sorry that happened, but what I'd like you to do is I'd, I'd like you to take out a piece of paper, uh, write your name on it, and today's Monday, uh, August 27th. I want you to write down what, what just happened. So, so I will have, when, when I go to the president, uh, I'll have your testimony of what happens. I'll give you five minutes to do it. And so they all write down what happened, and he collects it. And he starts reading it. And he starts seeing there's some contradictions. Somebody over here says, a man came in and he had brown hair. And somebody over here said, no, he had black hair. And somebody here says uh, he was 6'2", and somebody here says he's 5'10". 
And after going through them all, the, the history professor says, see, you can never know the truth. You can never know what happened in the past. But can't you see, he has just defeated himself because 95% of what everybody wrote was exactly the same. They all said this was a particular day. A man did come in. Everything except these details are all the same. And so what John is telling us here is that I was there. This actually happened. And we know from history and testimony that this is true. Jesus meets us in our doubts. At one point in Jesus' life where they can't believe the things he's saying, well, he says, if you can't believe me, at least believe the miracles that I'm doing. At least look at that evidence. John's saying, I'm not making this up. My testimony is true. But then there's some will say, well, uh, you know, the first century people, they were really gullible and superstitious. I find it so surprising people that come into my office and say that, you know, it's kind of, weren't they all, didn't all, they just believe in Greek mythology? And I asked them, have you, have you ever read any first century documents? Well, well, no, Dr. Woods, I never have, but, but. It's called chronological snobbery. We are so sophisticated now, we think that they believed anything back there. No, they didn't. They were just like you and me. They did not believe that somebody could walk on water. They did not believe that somebody could take water and turn it into wine. They did not believe that a virgin could give birth. They did not believe that somebody could stand up in the middle of a storm and say, peace be still. They did not believe that a man could walk into a house with a dead girl there that had been dead for hours and say to that dead girl, my little darling, stand up, wake up. They didn't believe those things. If the disciples wanted to fool the world, they might have thrown in maybe just one miracle (laughs) but they said all that we're writing are things that we saw we saw him do these things these are the testimonies well I have my doubts somebody says I have questions for God but don't you see that God doesn't read the book of Job God doesn't answer us our doubts with uh, his philosophical arguments, he answers our questions with a person, with his own son. The evidence is there. You can read it with your eyes. And there's more evidence for Christianity than any other ancient event. I mean, you can go to these places You can go to Bethlehem. You can go to Jerusalem. You can open scriptures and see this to be be true. But I'm going to let you in on a secret here. I can't tell you the number of students who have come into my office. And I can lay all of this out perfectly. And then I ask them this question. If I could prove to you 
that Jesus was who he said he was, would you be willing to uh, change your life and give your life over to him? To change your ideas about sex? To change your ideas uh, uh, about what you should do with your life, with your money, your relationships? I've never had one say, yes, I'd be willing to change. And John is pleading with us here. I was at the foot of the cross. I've got to put this parenthesis in here. I was there. I saw it. I'm telling you the truth. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. Then there's this second thing. We find it in verse number 28. And that is, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Now, throughout the entire period that Jesus has been under persecution, he has been beaten, his beard has been torn out, a crown of thorns has been put on his head, he is told to carry his cross. Nails are put into his hands and his feet. And he never says, ow, ouch, that hurts. He's fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. So why now? So why now the complaint I'm thirsty. The answer is what happens just before he says that. In verse 28, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, then he says it. He had fulfilled everything that he was supposed to have done. And now he is experiencing the weight of every single sin that I have done and every single sin that you have done. And the wrath of God is being poured on him after he has fulfilled everything. He is bearing the sins of the world. And did you look at the front of the bulletin where it says in Nahum, who can endure the heat of God's anger? God's wrath is poured out like a fire. He is experiencing this. Do you remember how John throughout the gospel is talking about water and Jesus. If you haven't, and even if you were here on February 2nd, you ought to go back and listen to Brad's sermon called The Streams, where Jesus at the Feast of the Tabernacles stands up in the middle of what's going on and he doesn't whisper this, he shouts it with all of his might. If anybody is thirsty... If anyone is thirsty, come to me and I'll give you water. And then a little later, there's a woman at the well who's tried out love with at least six different men, having married five of them, divorcing five of them, having been divorced. And he's tired and she's tired and she's thirsty And Jesus says, woman, I've got water for you. 
I've got water for you that if you drink of it, you're not going to thirst again. And do you remember what she says? She says, I, I want this water. Could you give me this water? And Jesus says, go call your husband. Well, what a change of subject. <laughs> I want this water. Go, go, go call your husband. Don't you see he's not changing the subject at all? Not at all. He's saying to her, you've lived a ruinous love life. And even if it was perfect, you'd still need something more in your life. And he's not wagging his finger at her saying, go call your husband. He's saying to her, he's being gentle. And he's saying, you've tried so many things in your life. You've thought that somebody was going to make you happy. And it hasn't happened six times. But I've got something for you. I have something that will give meaning to all of your life. And here he is on a cross, and he has promised water to anybody who's thirsty. He's promised living water to a woman, and he can't scratch his nose. How in the world is this man going to give living water to anybody who comes to him? It's because he thirsted that we can have the living waters. It's because he was separated from God that we can be united to God. He could promise water to all people because he knew he was going to take on the wrath of God. And through that, come out victorious. Bill Connor was raised in Wisconsin and he took his family down to Florida for a vacation. That sounds pretty good right now. And his daughter, Abby, who was 20 years old, inexplicably drowned on vacation and died. In their grief, they did not forget that she was an organ donor. And so they donated her organs Several years later, Bill Connor decided to go back to Florida to do a trip uh, advocating for uh, donation of organs. Before he left, he got a call from uh, a man named Jack in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And Jack said, uh, Bill, would you mind stopping by my place? And so... uh, Bill stopped at Jack's house and maybe you know what happened. Jack said, uh, I have Abby's heart beating in my chest. And I wanted to say thank you. And then Jack pulled out a stethoscope out of his back pocket and put it to Bill's ears and then put the drum to his own heart so that he could hear Abby's heart beat. Christ's heart was broken so that he could give us a new heart. A spear went into his side and blood and water came out 
so that he can give us living water. No matter if we're living in the year 2020 or 1422 or 792, that water still quenches human thirst. And then there's this last thing. It's in verse number 30. It's the very last words of Christ on the cross that John gives to us. And it is these three English words. It is finished. I say three English words. It's only one Greek word. When John was writing this gospel, he only used one Greek word. Uh, you might have heard this before, uh, tetelestai. That word tetelestai is found in many first century documents. But it is a business term. It's a term that some of you have seen when you paid off your last mortgage payment and you burned the mortgage because tetelestai means it is paid in full. And the last thing John records Jesus saying is, it's all paid. I've done it. I've fulfilled every single prophecy. It's paid. It's done. I've done it. Every temptation that came to me, everything asked of me, I'm able to reconcile humanity to God. It's paid in full. That's really good news. That's great news. Except for two people. It's not good news for the self-haters. We know who we are. When we're criticized, our whole world is deflated because we're trying so hard, but it's never good enough. You hate yourself for your weaknesses. There are events that happened in your life five years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that you still beat yourself up about. Don't you know that Christ has taken care of those sins? of our weaknesses. He's taken care of our weaknesses. You know, if you're a self-hater as a Christian, what you're saying is that Christ's death isn't good enough. It's just not good enough. We still beat ourselves up just so that we can live with ourselves. And then there's the second group that they don't like the words, it is finished, and those are the self-provers They're still seeking significance, trying to prove themselves. You may be 75, 85 years old. You're still trying to prove yourself through accomplishments, relationships, professional success. If you're a student, grades. Perhaps if you're younger or older, your looks, how much you weigh, how much you don't weigh, you name it. We're still trying to prove ourselves. And it's almost like we're going up to heaven and we're saying to to Jesus, could you get off your throne, please? And it's, it's not done. I needed to do a little bit more for me. 
You might have heard this before. You will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Because when you stop trying to prove things to yourself and when you've lost absolutely everything, uh, then you'll know that this is the man who can quench all of our thirst. For those of you who are here, for those that are watching, who are in deep sorrow, despair, grief, you notice the title of the sermon is The Good Shepherd. Because Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. If you're struggling this morning, if you're watching me, if you're here, you're struggling with who you are, where you are in your Christian life, where you are in your marriage, where you are in your life, Do you remember the good shepherd? Do you remember when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd? You know what he was thinking about? He was thinking of that shepherd in Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me as long as I live. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, how in the world are you going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Because on the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his friends, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am, you may be also forever with me. And there's Thomas again saying, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life. And when he rose from the dead, he said, Thomas, come look at Come look at my hands. Come look at my side. I know it's hard to believe, Thomas, that somebody rose from the dead. I want you to see the evidence. Come see it, Thomas. Come on. Jesus, the good shepherd. Let us pray. We are so thankful to worship you under the sky this day our great God and heavenly father to remember your son on the cross thankful for those who are able to watch this and to to know that you are there that you've given so many proofs of your existence it's our heart 
that finds it hard to put down our objections. Father, as we come to have communion now, may we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled so that you could give us water, abundant life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.